0: Hi, everyone. Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night, and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
0: Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft, And we are live on tape from Dublin. Um, When we think about the Beatles, there is one date that stands out above all others and I think we can all agree that date is August the 23rd. We all celebrate August the 23rd as a Beatle fan and it's a magical day, isn't it Stephen? It is a magical day, it's Beatle Day. It is Beatle Day and what we are trying to do is, it's always interesting how the Beatles changed so quickly year on year, um, you know, that that progression that they made. Uh, But the question we were kind of asking ourselves was, is there a date across all the years of the 60s that seems to be a significant one in beatle history. Yes, and I tasked you with the job of finding that date. <laughs> and I have tasked myself and responded by saying I think the date is August the 23rd. It had better be August the 23rd. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know we we you know a few years ago we did our Beatles at Christmas episodes and that's a nice way of kind of packaging up their 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 yearly work. But August the 23rd when you when you pull it apart so many fascinating things happen in and around and on August the 23rd so our plan is across these episodes is to look at August the 23rd and do little beetle snapshots one one episode for each year. (laughs) Well, there are certain topics that do pop up and you could easily spend an hour talking on them, so I guess that's the whole point, isn't it? Um, So what we're going to do is we're going to look at August the 23rd from 1960 to 1969 and see where the Beatles were at. Let's do it. That's a good concept, isn't it? That's a good concept. Uh, uh, That's reasonable. Um, So we're going to start in 1960. August the 23rd, 1960. If I was a Beatle, where would I be? You would be in Hamburg. In the Indra Club. OK.
2: Having a good time? you would be having a great time. Hamburg, big lake, dirty streets. <laughs> dirty people. Dirty people. What's not to love?
0: <laughs> um, Tuesday, the 23rd of August 1960, the Beatles um, were one week into their first trip to Hamburg. So it is fascinating about how young they were at this time. So if you are looking at their ages, Stuart Sutcliffe is the eldest. He is Mm -hmm. 20. Uh, John is 19. Paul is 18. uh, Pete Best is 18, for it is he. And George is 17 years of age. It's crazy. It is crazy. And they are seven days in uh, into their first ever Hamburg visit, or as Mark Lewison calls it, the great 1960s Punk fest.
2: Yes, and that's clearly what it is. This is this is the start of their eight gazillion hours of uh, training in Hamburg.
0: And, you know, the Beatles story moves so fast. The reality is that, you know, from the 1st of August to the end of August in 1960, they, they leave the month as a totally different band to the band that was there at the start of the month. So, you know, the one big change that happens is Pete Best appears.
2: Yes, so he's he's... Literally just joined uh, in, in August. So the, they'd had various drummers. Pete is actually their fourth drummer in a 13 week period. So, you know, they're going through drummers faster than Spinal Tap. <laughs> and uh, they know they're off to Hamburg and they know they need a drummer. And arguably, that's why and how Pete gets the gig because it's unfair to say they're desperate
0: for a drummer. Well, the the, the kind of the Hamburg thing lands on them via Alan Williams and Mm. they have a a date where they're expected to leave and travel. And as you say, you know, Pete is like their fourth drummer in three months or thereabouts. Uh, And yeah, he is drafted in, you know, purely out of expediency because Hamburg is on the horizon. So they just need a guy. But, you know, Pete is kind of reasonably well known. They'd have seen him play they have seen him. So they see him play
2: with a group called the Blackjacks at the Casbo, which is the club run by his mother. And that's on the 6th is when they see him there. And then on the 12th, Paul asks him to come along for an audition. But it's not really an audition because they've got no other choice. So (laughs) it's it's a done deal, I think, as far as the Beatles are concerned. Pete thinks he's going for an audition, but he's got the job.
0: Yeah. And of course, you know, we've talked about Mona Best, Pete's mum before that, uh, you know, particularly when we had Mm. our chats with Rogue Best that, the Beatles are already involved in the Best family. You'd kind of wonder, actually, why did it take so long for Pete Best to, you know, he he seems of an age and, you know, he's of the network. It's a wonder he he, he didn't land earlier. I think although
2: he's part of that network, as you say, and his mother is running the club, he, he is a part, he is a kind of solitary, he does his own thing. You know, he's very into sport and physical fitness and you couldn't say that any of the other three are into any of those things. So he's, he's, he's sort of there, but I think on the periphery, and they don't know him that well.
0: Um, yes, that's true. And uh, I mean, that's kind of the legend of Pete Best, was that he was never really one of the no. John Paul George gang. He didn't speak the lingo, so to speak. He was
2: always on the outside. He was always the other one.
0: Yeah, yeah. So they travel on the 16th of August um, to Hamburg. Uh, they play their first gig in the Indra on the 17th. And this is, they are under kind of the, 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 the kosh of Bruno Koschmeter. see what you did there. Oh, yeah. No, I didn't <laughs> see what I did there.
2: <laughs> but yeah, they are, yeah. Yeah, so Bruno Koschmeter has travelled. Uh, you know, there is a backstory there where Alan Williams had been in Hamburg. He tries to play Koshmeter at Tape. Uh, sort of, you know, I can get you these bands from Liverpool. The tape is not working. It's corrupted in some way. Kochmeter arrives in London initially looking for uh, Alan Williams. He knows he's in England somewhere. So there's a sort of a backstory there. But basically, Alan Williams has put this package together. He's already sent bands to Hamburg. Uh, Howie Casey is there with uh, Derry and the Seniors uh, already. The Beatles... They all travel in a little van and there's photographs online of them sort of partway through their trip and John Lennon shoplifting a harmonic on his way there, et cetera, et cetera. So they arrive not really knowing what to expect. And you've got to remember that their only touring experience to this date has been sort of a few days a week or so with Johnny Gentle in Scotland, which by all accounts was pretty horrendous. You know, they were sleeping in you know bad digs they weren't getting their money they didn't they didn't have any money for food they were relying on on the sort of kindness of strangers uh, as they went along so that was a traumatic thing but they just leaped at the chance of going to hamburg
0: yeah that that is the legend of the beatles obviously is that hamburg made them and that mm. they were in no means by no means a professional outfit who were you know, on paper, they would not have seemed up for the task of no. Hamburg of these kind of six-hour sessions of playing nightly, six nights a week um, to crowds of drunks. So, uh, you know, it's it's a very it's it's unusual that it happened at all.
2: It is, and what what you've got to remember is they 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 weren't used to playing this length of set. Yeah, you know, the longest I think they'd played before was maybe two hours. Um, but here they're expected to play between four and a half, six hours, uh, you know, a night in various shifts. They just aren't road ready for this, yeah. and they have to learn very, very fast. Uh, one of the things they do is they resolve right at the beginning that, you know, across these sets, they're not going to repeat themselves across the set. So even though, you know, if you were playing in a bar for that length of time, you think, well, people are going to come in, stay for a while, leave, new people will come in. It doesn't matter if you repeat some songs, but they resolve right from the beginning that they're not going to do that. And um, this, as you say, is really the making of them.
0: Yeah. So uh, they play their first gig on the 17th, which is the 20th anniversary of the first Nazi bombing of Liverpool. They sent,
2: us, they sent us bombs. We sent them the Beatles.
0: The Jeez. Beatles. I, I'm, I'm now going to drop one of my favourite Beatles facts, which is the Sir Joseph Lockwood story. Do you know about this? Go ahead. So Sir Joseph Lockwood, if you're fans of the Beatles story, is kind of always portrayed as this avuncular head of EMI in the 1960s. So when the Beatles are trying to get stuff done, they have to bring it to Sir Joe Sir to Joe. get him to, to sign off on it. But the amazing thing about Sir Joseph Lockwood is that, you know, he grew up in a sort of a, a flour mill. Uh, background That was his family background. But during the Second World War, he was in charge of measures to uh, prevent bombings in the uh, northwest of England. And it is quite possible his measures to divert bombings in and around Liverpool and Manchester and in the northwest ha- impacted on the lives of the Beatles. Very good. Isn't that fascinating? That's very good, but presumably he didn't. He didn't stop the bombing on the seventeenth of August. He didn't. No, <laughs> but there is this legend that the Beatles were born to the sound of bombs in the background, and it's uh, yeah, it's always a bit, uh, it's a, it's a bit of a myth that John was born yep. in the middle of a bombing raid. But uh, it is interesting that Sir Joseph Lockwood was involved in. Protecting Liverpool. Gotta just say, Jason, we were all born in the middle of a bombing <laughs> campaign. Anyway, yeah. anyway, a little bit of politics. Um, the Bruno Koschmeter is um, an interesting guy. He's he's kind of labelled as this old man at the time. He's only about thirty four when the Beatles rock up.
2: Yes, George in in Anthology specifically says he wasn't some young rock and roll entrepreneur. He was an old guy who'd been crippled in the war. He had a limp and didn't seem to know much about music or anything. We only ever saw him once a week when we tried to get into his office for our wages. So there's a sort of image of them trying to kick the door down to to, to get their money. But yeah, he's an old guy at 35.
0: Yeah, he was born in 1926 in Gdansk and he only died in 2000, you know, so he got to live to see the the legend unfold over many decades. Um, So they spent their first night In Bruno's house? Yes. All in the one bed.
2: (laughs) Not with Bruno, but (laughs) all in the one bed together. Yeah, there's no accommodation for them when they arrive. So he takes them to his house and, uh, you you know, they stay in a spare room and then they, you know, move into the, the Bambi Kino cinema which is the stuff of legend as
0: well. Well, yeah, this is the other Beatles legend that it, uh, you know, as Paul says, we lived backstage in the Bambikino next to the toilets and you could always smell them. The room had been an old storeroom and there were just concrete walls and nothing else. No heat, no wallpaper, not a lick of paint and two sets of bunk beds with not very much covers. Union Jack flags. We were frozen. You know, something I've never heard anyone ask is why didn't they just go and look for somewhere else to live? Yeah. Or buy a blanket. <laughs> yeah, a couple of blankets or a couple more flags. Yeah. yeah. It seems logical to me. Yeah, they, they never really took it upon themselves to say, well... To better their condition. Maybe we could get some cheap digs. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I know we talked in the uh, Christmas episode about how they spent Christmas at the Seaman's Mission. Um, you know, they, they could have even... Pretended to be sailors. Exactly. Um, but obviously, because they're living in a cinema, the cinema is also playing movies. so yes. They
2: don't really have any peace. No, so they're, they're, they're playing all night. Uh so they're sort of getting back to to bed such as it is in the early hours of the morning and then the cinema sort of starts kicks into life at four o'clock so there's a movie at four six thirty nine p m and this is right next door, and people are using the toilets beside them and uh
0: yeah yeah, why didn't they? Add that to the list of questions when Paul comes on. (laughs) Well, we, um, you know, Paul says that Hamburg was 800 hours in the rehearsal room, but we do have a a close personal friend, Howie Casey, who was there right at the start.
2: He was. So, uh, as I say, Howie Casey is already there with Darien Seniors. He apocryphally tells Alan Williams, don't send the Beatles because you're going to spoil it for everybody else. But he he recounts, the last time he had seen them was at the Billy Fury audition, which was on the 10th of May, 1960, which ultimately led to the the Johnny Gentle tour. But he said, you know, they were terrible. Mm. Um, But of course, at that time, Tommy Moore was the drummer. He didn't arrive. Johnny Hutch was sitting in, so so it was a bit shambolic. But anyway, Harry Casey is playing at the uh, Kaiser Keller. He goes down to see them, and he says, my jaw went to the floor. There was such a difference to what I'd seen at the audition. There was something there, a spark, that extra little bit. We did a bit of harmony singing, but they were marvellous at it. They were stunning. You knew they were going places. Now, bear in mind, that's three months since he last saw them. Yeah. And really all that they've done... Without Pete Best, is is back Johnny Gentle, mm. and he is saying it, over the course of those three months, they've changed from this shambolic outfit that he sees at the audition and is saying don't send them, to what he's saying yeah you can see that their harmonies and again it's this this point that they're focusing on the vocal arrangements
0: and it you know August the twenty third is the seventh of forty eight consecutive nights and um, that they are playing. In Hamburg and as you said you know they, because they're doing these long sets they don't want to repeat themselves. You, you kind of wonder when did they learn these songs? Are they learning them in front of the audience? Are they playing them? They must be doing some kind of ad hoc you know live rehearsals. Yeah I think
2: so I think I think they're sort of learning on the fly so they, they, they were always known for sort of trying to find obscure songs you know B-sides of American singles and things like that so they had a repertoire but very very quickly um, you know George says in Anthology we had to learn millions of songs because we'd be on for hours Hamburg was really our apprenticeship learning to play in front of people so Carl Perkins has an album out. they just play his entire album they play Johnny Burnett's album Elvis's first LP Buddy Holly's first LP Gene Vincent's LP where they do have songs like Ray Charles, what I Say? They spin that out for 15 minutes. John recounts, you know, a 10 minute version of Baby Let's Play House, which is the song then that will influence Run For Your Life. Yeah. So it's a combination of learning new songs on the fly and extending the songs that they have.
0: I do love this notion that they played entire albums or that they would, you know, they would learn entire albums yeah. from start to finish. That you know, if you're kind of reading into it, you can think, oh, they're learning about the magic of albums or song sequencing or collections of songs that they valued the album. It's a concept ahead of its time. There you go. Yeah. But they they, 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 they kind of could see where the uh, where the writing was for that. Um, And then uh, to quote Jürgen Falmer, I can't imagine that they would be any better than they were in Hamburg, any more energetic, any more giving it all. Uh, I think it was due to the atmosphere. This was authentic rock and roll, the raw sex appeal of it. And... That's kind of almost the tragedy about Hamburg. I know we've got later on Star mm. Club tapes, but it is lost to yes. the ether.
2: Yes, so until you invent the time machine.
0: It, it, what it, is the question, well, where would I go back to if it had to be Beetle related? Because <laughs> I might go back to somewhere else. Oh, I see. Right, okay. <laughs> where would I go back? The, the
2: origins uh, I, of ELO or something. It,
0: well, yes, I'm only human. King Crimson, Hyde Park, 69. Yes, that's true. Um, I I think if I had to choose a spot to see them yeah, that would be good. Although you know, you, you, it's 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 obviously pre-Ringo Beatles. But, yeah, um, it would certainly give you a better idea. Particularly if I could bring a video camera and then well, you, bring that video back to the modern day. You could go
2: back with some money and hire them a proper hotel. Yes, and but then, then then you'd be in their inner circle. You'd be, you know.
0: Yeah, but then they mightn't have the hunger, and we just would have. Uh, you know, it's it's like one of these butterfly effect things. You they, know?
2: they they you're saying sleeping under a Union Jack is what spurred them to greatness.
0: Anyway, <laughs> um, moving on. Moving on. Um, Hamburg is still, uh, still, you know, making money off the Beatles. They say the Indra, oh, aren't we all? <laughs> Indra, where the Beatles played first, is the current tour sport claim. I haven't been to Hamburg. I no, I we must.
2: should we should go to Hamburg. We should go. We to should Hamburg. organise a trip to Hamburg.
0: Yes, my my my,
2: my other very close personal show by his friend Tom Holland wants to go to Hamburg oh so, really yeah. my
0: my dad regularly goes to Hamburg for, for um, uh, work reasons and uh, he kind of constantly tells me about uh, <laughs> constantly tells me about uh, all the stuff I should be seeing over there anyway um, so that's 1960 August the 23rd 1960 end of week one in Hamburg it's John Paul George Stu and Pete working uh, the Indra living in a grotty room And wondering where it's going to go next, figuring out how to fill out six hours of gigs per night. Yes. So let's skip forward one year to August the 23rd, 1961. And now we are in the thick of Cavern Beatles. It's a Wednesday. It is a Wednesday. I know that's usually your line. (laughs) Um, And, and, you know, the difference is, you know, if, if 1960 is... Hamburg Beatles 1961 is really Cavern Beatles.
2: Yes. So this is really, I suppose, in the popular consciousness, this is uh, this is where the Beatles start.
0: Yes. And it's still John, Paul, George and Pete.
2: Yes. So Stuart has stayed
0: in Hamburg. And on this particular day, Wednesday, August the 23rd, 61, they are doing lunchtime and evening gigs at the Cavern. So they make their debut in The Cavern back on the 9th of February, 1961. And um, they, they kind of take to it pretty naturally. They do. The amusing thing
2: is George turns up in jeans and they won't let him in. This is on the
0: first date yeah, in on February. The first day. He has to kind
2: of convince them that he's with the band. Yes, yes. Because if you, if you wear jeans you don't mind getting them dirty, so you don't mind having a fight. That's the logic.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so
2: if you turn up in jeans, you're, you're ready for a scrap. Is that
0: why I'm wearing jeans today? I hope not. <laughs> I'm ready for a scrap. Um, yeah, and it was, uh, George had to convince the bouncer, Paddy Delaney, that he was with the band. Paddy Delaney, he's from home, I'd say. He's from home. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, give,
2: give up, give the Beatles back to the Irish. That's, that's what I say. Uh,
0: uh, yeah, there's a, there's a show in that, I, I think. believe so. Yes, on BBC Sounds. Um, the first show that they play there, uh, they're playing from 1 to 2pm and they're given a £15 fee to share between them. And we might laugh at that, but you stick yes. that in the inflation calculator, it's just over 250 quid. It's decent money. It is decent money. I mean, when you think about, you know, live music in this day and age, you know, there's nobody picking up 250 quid for an hour long lunchtime gig. It's all do it for free and do it'll it give you free. the exposure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's kind of the money they were making. And it's, it's not. Bad money. It, it beats proper work. Beats proper work. Hmm. Yeah. They're doing a couple of those gigs per week and uh, they're they're bringing down uh, money. Um, they progress from lunchtime shows to evening shows. So they do their first evening show on the 21st of uh, March, 1961. And, um, you know, by the time we get to the 23rd of August, these bookings, we don't have Brian on the scene yet. So no. it's Pete and Mona Best who are still involved in this.
2: It is. I mean, you know, John... Paul, George, not interested in the business side. I mean, they're quite happy to leave that to Pete. So even though you have that core three who are very tight and have that friendship, they're 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 just not interested in the business side at all. So they're quite happy for Pete to do that. And his mother is, I think at this stage, Mona, is sort of a de facto manager.
0: It does, if, if, if you kind of look at that pattern of behavior, that's kind of true across the entire... Decade that John, Paul, and George, and then eventually Ringo, they just want to rock up and do the work and, and be the band. So, kind of, Brian eventually comes into the slipstream. And, you know, for the Brian years, he's basically like, okay, Beatles, turn up and do this here, do this here, do this
2: here. Yeah. So, what you're saying is they need a Mona, a Brian, or a Klein? A
0: Klein. Well, you see, Klein didn't do that. Isn't that the and oh, no, we're not going to go back to <laughs> part there. 7 Klein anyway but uh, that's where they responded best they didn't they, they wanted to be in an environment where they didn't have to think about that exactly. they could just do the creativity the the gigs the recordings the play and so this is a, this is a little window into how they are going to be
2: exactly and the other person who has arrived is neil aspinall
0: yeah they're slowly it's like watching the start of an action movie where the crew are slowly yeah, coming slowly together assembling. um yeah neil is driving the 65 pound van that's 1150 pounds in modern money uh, again a very affordable way to make music well exactly but they are i think the only band
2: in liverpool at the time that have their own driver that's pretty wild and that this is the van if you people would like to refer back to our rogue best episode where yeah. rogue was explaining that uh Mona said to Neil I'll buy the van for 65 pounds
0: and you can well we'll sort something out I think <laughs> was how rogue put it <laughs> right and they certainly did um but rogue wasn't born um for another 12 months or so uh July 1962 um at this point if you go see the Beatles they are not in their suits they are the leathery Beatles yes they look like hooligans, according to George. Mm. And this lunchtime show is their 28th lunchtime show at the Cavern and 38th show overall. And I do think it's, I know I've said this before, it is quite an odd notion that what shall we do over lunch? Let's go see a gig.
2: I was, I was just about to say that, you know, if in Haler we're playing in the centre of Dublin, would you go and see them? Well, you wouldn't. well no, I wouldn't. No, you wouldn't see, go and see uh, uh, them. Anyway. if some other band... <laughs> if a band I liked. Yes, if a band you liked <laughs> was playing
0: in Dublin, would you sort of go down every... Well, the closest thing that happens is there are lunchtime concerts by symphony orchestras. Yes, which so that's uh, very Which happens very in, in Dublin, which is very nice and, and proper. But, you know, to actually go see, you know, cutting edge... You know, rock and roll or, you know, whatever cutting edge music. Well, I don't know what cutting edge music is in 2022, Stephen. It's still the Beatles, right?
2: That's it. I think that's <laughs> right.
0: Um, we, 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 we do, have,
2: in Belfast, we have a thing called Out to Lunch. Okay. Which is a spin-off of a, sort of a fest. But it's more like a festival thing, you know, where they put comedians and bands and things on. But it's not, it, it's known bands who are touring and then they have a little gig and they put these concerts on. And we, yeah, we have the Ulster Orchestra will play. But this is sort of an unknown local Bad.
0: Yeah, it's an underground club yeah. basically. You yeah. know, like you people eulogize places about CBGBs, but this is a 1961 CBGBs in the northwest of of England that nobody's really paying attention to it is it has always been an odd part of the Beatles story that yeah. they had to work so hard to get noticed in London I'm, I'm not sure this is happening anywhere else there is is—I the only other time I've really come across was I read a book about um, Roxy Music and Brian Ferry used to perform in the 60s with there'd be soul bands playing lunchtime gigs Okay, uh, and that's the only kind of similar kind of vibe but again that's in you know north of England will be yeah. the other northeast um, that, that, that's kind of the only kind of story I've heard that kind of sounds like the similar. Beatles story Um so how, you know, if they are doing a lunchtime gig, how does their normal, how would their day have played out on August the 23rd, 1961? I feel like I'm sitting on a sofa for good morning. And what would, what would, the, what would the Queen be doing? <laughs> uh,
2: well, first of all, it's Pete and Neil. They have access to the van. The equipment is stored in the van. So they arrive, you know, around 11 o'clock, take the equipment down the steps into the club. And then John, Paul and George, they arrive, you know, half an hour later, so they don't have to do any of the heavy lifting. And they're all traveling from different parts of Liverpool. They're traveling in separately and they're all traveling by bus. And when I say Pete and Neil have the equipment, the one piece that they don't have is George's black Gretsch Mm. guitar, which he acquires in July. And he is like super glued to this uh, guitar. He will not let this guitar out of his sight. Well,
0: it costs £90, which is more than the van.
2: (laughs) Yes, but he only paid £70. He paid £70 up front, £20 on an IOU, and he still owes that £20 to this day.
0: Well, I think he's probably resolved of that debt. Um, The Cavern stage was famously only about a foot and a half off the ground, and they would play almost eyeball to eyeball looking down at the audience, and the audience would interact, and they would cheer, and they would hand up requests and all the rest.
2: This is the camaraderie they developed with that audience. And uh, the audience is made up of schoolgirls, office workers, clerks, you know, people that live in the, uh, are working in, in in the vicinity of the club. You know, yeah. this, is, this is a commercial street uh, in Liverpool. And uh, this is, you know, if you read Mark Lewis's book, he is very good at documenting the friendship that develops between members of the band and members of the audience. Yeah. Know, quite innocent friendships between these guys who are playing and sort of 15, 16-year-old girls who are, who are sort of, Skipping school at lunchtime to, to go to the cavern.
0: And and the club itself, what
2: was that like? Well we have we we have descriptions and the, the the one thing that comes out of everybody's description is it absolutely stank.
0: It does not like we have been to the cavern in Liverpool as it is now. Yes. Which is a rebuilt, reconstructed, fake, touristy fake is the word you're looking for. <laughs> no, it's got the authentic vibes. Of course. Um it's got the arches and everything, but amazingly, they demolished the original cavern. Um, hard to believe. But uh, the new cavern does not smell.
2: No. It's so very touristy. It's very touristy. But uh, if they put some rotting vegetable, some BO, some toilets, and uh, the smell of Thelma's
0: snack bar hot dogs. Mm-hmm. Good old Thelma. Um, and it's also dangerous. I mean, health and safety have ruined everything, still. Health and safety have ruined mm. everything.
2: So uh, yeah, it, it is, if you were claustrophobic, I think you absolutely would not want to be there. So uh, yeah, I think it was a death trap and it was officially a death trap. So in May 1961, there were 15 people were killed in a fire in a club in Bolton. Mm. Now this was, it was a different setup. It was a, an upstairs room, but uh, it prompted a public inquiry and we have a description of the cavern from that report. So it is 11 feet below ground. You go down 17 slippery stone steps. It is 58 feet by 39 feet with a stage at one end.
0: It's so small. Tiny. It's and at so lunchtime,
2: small. they crammed two to 300 people in there at lunchtime. And you think that's, that's appalling. But in the evening, they get five to 600 people in there in a space which is less than 60 feet by 40 feet and has to accommodate a stage. Wow, yeah. Um, And the report concludes it has a, quote,
0: utterly inadequate means of escape. Well, uh, totally imaginable if it's uh, 17 slippery stone steps 11 feet underground to try and and get out. And the one thing they
2: said was in its favour was there was nothing to catch fire. You know because it was stone it's stone, and it was, yeah, and you think that's not that's not a good good enough uh, because the, we, we have this we have reports of sort of the sweat running down the walls, and yeah, there's no ventilation there's in the place. no ventilation, and the electrics are shorting, and the toilets are overflowing, and you know so there's loose electrical cables
0: and water shall we say on the floor <laughs> it's it's mad, but yet for you know a significant part of nineteen sixty one it's the Beatles' home and you know, on this day, as we said, they were playing lunchtime and evening time shows. So John, Paul and George would just go to the pub. Pete and Neil would usually go home. Yeah. And they'd, they'd pass a few hours and then they'd go back in for the evening show. Yeah. So they're sitting in the grips, George clutching his grouch. Hmm. And
2: uh, again, this idea that, you know, well, we know why Neil is going home, but uh, Pete is going home. And again, it's this continuing sense of separateness. Yeah. You know, he's not part of the band.
0: Yeah, it it is it is odd. Um and then the evening show is their 11th evening show and what's notable is that they are topping the bill. They are a draw. So you're saying yeah. 5 to 600 people, you know, coming in uh, to these evening time gigs when they're they're packed and uh it's uh, you know they're topping a bill with support from the Rock and Black Cats and Carl Vincent and the Counts. I said that right? You and did. uh it's you know but it's an odd time for the band because even though they have their Hamburg thing going. They are ensconcing themselves in the cavern. Um, They're not really... They're not going anywhere. Yeah.
2: And Bob Wooler, who is a sort of compare in the cavern, he is adamant that around this time, this sort of summer uh, period, they were on the point of splitting up, that they felt they'd got to a certain point, but they were stuck. And they needed something to come along, something to happen to break out of this. And they did not see any way of doing this themselves or at least they weren't capable, didn't feel capable Mm. of of moving up from where they were. That is a
0: thing about them that there was honest ambition.
2: Yes I mean they were always they were always driving forward they're always waiting for the next big thing Mm. but they they are strangely you know they're not authors of their own destiny often they are literally just saying well something will happen something (laughs) will happen
0: Um, and it it does. does. It does happen. But we, we it's its hard to get a sense of what the ambition was maybe amongst their peers. There seem to be a lot of people maybe just happy to play the circus. I'm sure lots of people dreamt of being a big famous rock star. But even at this point, the Beatles seem to be, um, you know, a little bit on trying to forge their own path. And I don't know how much of that is is—is just us kind of looking at it in retrospect. But they they did seem to have a as, is, it, is it preposterous to say a sense of destiny? I mean, John, I think, has
2: a sense of destiny. Mm. But, you know, everybody can have a sense of destiny. Well, I think we all, <laughs> have, know, a we all have a sense of yes, destiny. Yeah, to yeah. some, uh, you know, To some degree. But I, I think th- there just seems to be a confidence yes. that something will happen. And they're, they're always, they, they never look to plan. You know, again, this is another point that Mark Lewis makes is they, they never plan anything. No, they're, They don't have a strategy. It's not that they sit down and, uh, you know, with a pencil and paper and they work out, well, what we must do is this and this and this and this. And that doesn't start happening until Brian Epstein appears. But even then, they aren't really involved in that.
0: But if you're talking about how do they manifest the destiny, you know, you could say John did it by bringing Paul in and then bringing George in, that he, you know, debatably felt that these people were necessary.
2: I think there is a sense, yes, there is a sense that John is driving it forward and there is definitely a sense that they are not like other bands, that they're not going to be content playing the Cavern, no matter how good the money is, playing the Butlins, summer seasons, Mm -hmm. going back and forward to Hamburg, you know, ending up on a cabaret
0: circuit or something this is not what they want but they never actually go down that route that's an interesting point like it's all for the cause of group based rock and roll the cavern Hamburg all the associated gigs they never actually go down the route of doing a Butlins summer camp or family entertainment or any of that things which some of their peers do do so they are staying true to that Rock Roots vibe. I think, I think
2: they are different in that respect. So, you you know, Rory Storm does that. The, the Remo Four are off playing in army bases. Mm. Uh, you, you know, they just don't do that.
0: Yeah. Um, so this is August the 23rd, 1961, lunchtime and evening gigs at the Cavern. But, uh, again, as the crew is coming together in the background, August 1961 is also when Brian Epstein writes his first column for Mersey Beat magazine. So, you know, it's... He, he's, he's he, this, this thing is formulating a scene. The people are coming into this scene and Brian is kind of in the wings. That's the closing scene of the first half of the movie, I think. And I think it's the closing scene of the first half of this episode. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. End of part one. Intermission.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: End of intermission, part two. Welcome back. August the 23rd, 1962 was a Thursday, and it is the day that John and Cynthia Lennon got married. Yes, and we've done an episode on that, so... That's 1963. <laughs> well, we have, but it's, uh, it, it's in our A-cast plus realm. We we probably should touch upon it again because they get married on August the 23rd, 1962. Um, were they planning to get married uh, a day or two earlier? <laughs> like it, it, it's, it comes very, very quickly, this wedding.
2: It's very, very quick. So the day before on the 22nd of August, Cynthia sees her mother off to Canada um, she, she's not present for the wedding. And the night before that night, John tells Aunt Mimi that he's getting married in the morning. And she is, uh, takes a well? She's delighted. <laughs> she is not. No, she... sorry, delirious. Oh, sorry, I couldn't read my own writing. <laughs> she there.
0: flips out. You're too young. You're making a mess of your life. And this seems to be the next heartbreak in a series of heartbreaks that John causes Aunt Mimi. Poor Mimi. Poor Mimi. I mean, she's often cast as this... Bossy, matriarchal, uh, difficult person, but she had a. She was trying to do her best, was she? I think by she was by the standards
2: of her day, and all she got was a bungalow.
0: <laughs> well, the 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 thing about Aunt Mimi is, you know, that there's a version of events where John doesn't make good of himself. Yes, and um, you know, uh, is is close to potentially being like Freddie Lennon. He's he's thirty five and still
2: living with Aunt Mimi. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, she... This time next year, Mimi, we'll be millionaires.
0: Yeah, but only fools and horses. There's, I, I can see Aunt Mimi's concerns and it's a very... She wouldn't have been the only uh, parental figure of that time acting in that way. No. In that kind of strict, no. here's how you should behave, here's what you should do. You're ruining things and reacting against the hooliganism and the obs of the teenagers of the early 60s, etc. I see you as an Aunt Mimi character. Well, I, it is my parenting style. I do model myself on, on, on Aunt Mimi. Um But the reason, um, you know, and we did do a, a parallel episode about the relationship of uh, the Ballad of John and Cynthia. You know, they've been, you know, they first met in 1957. So they've known each other for about five years through art college. They began a relationship in 1958. But the thing that, brings the wedding to a head is that Cynthia is pregnant. She
2: fell pregnant. (laughs) Yes. I think that's what you did in 1960. You fell pregnant. Yes, it it was purely in the
0: stars. They, 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 They had never used contraception, apparently. You've done the research. Uh, yes. And uh, John's reaction when uh, he finds out is that, well, well, you know, we'll just have to get married. We'll just have to get married. Classic that's, reaction. That's what they do. <laughs> that's what they do. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that too was also a common thing that you did. You just got someone pregnant. You got married. That was it.
2: Yeah. And uh, again, you know, when you read the story, one of the things I hated at school was having to read Charles Dickens because the stories are full of coincidences and points at which you know, things could have happened to derail the story. But this story is exactly the same. Mm. You know, and this is exactly the a, one of those points where John gets married and settles down and leaves the band and Paul goes off to, you know, write songs on his own and works with Lionel Bart, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this is a pivotal point. This is a huge change in John's circumstances. Yes. And August, July, August of 1962 is a big pivotal moment for the band and this is just one of a series of things and potentially it's it could derail their progress that's that suddenly started to happen
0: yes um and and Mark Lewison has done his Evolver 1962 show and he f- traces the year of 1962 from the 1st of January to the 31st of December that's normally when years end yes. and uh you know he he basically sets it out as a a propulsion, you know, that they are going through throughout that year. You know, they formally sign to uh, NEMS on the 1st of July. Um, On the 22nd of July, Mal comes on staff and Queenie Epstein, Brian's mum and Brian's dad, see the Beatles at uh, Cambridge Hall. Um, But it is this week that culminates on the 23rd of August. That is, you know, we, we talked about 1960. They're a different band from the first... Uh, Of August to the end of August 1960. They are a different band literally from the 16th of August to the 23rd of August 1962. Because on the 16th of August, Pete gets the boot. Pete gets the boot and Ringo comes in. Um, Yeah, it it is quite a busy week.
2: It is. And one of the reasons why they have to get rid of Pete in this time frame is they've got a TV appearance booked Hmm. for the 22nd. So they do not want, they know that Pete is going to leave, put that kindly. Um, (laughs) So they've got to get him out of the band and they've got to get Rinko in by the time the TV cameras arrive uh, on the 22nd to film them at the cavern. I mean, they absolutely do not want Pete there for that appearance.
0: They do not. And, you know, Pete leaves on uh, the 16th. Um, on the 22nd of August, it is this TV appearance. And this is the famous TV appearance of some other guy yes. where uh, the Beatles are playing. So the, the 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 crazy thing is that, you know, Ringo plays, you know, his first gig with them on August the 18th. So Pete is kicked out on the 16th. Johnny Hutchinson sits in on drums Mm -hmm. for, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a gig at the River Park Ballroom. Ringo plays his first gig on the 18th of August. So that's when the Beatles were officially John, Paul, George and Ringo. They rehearse for two hours, apparently, before Ringo makes his live debut. But... Uh, this 22nd of August gig is some other guy. So Ringo's been in the band four days. We're very familiar with that footage as Beatles fans. Yes, And you have to look at it thinking this is Ringo's fourth day in the band. Pete is in the room. Oh, yeah. Pete is in the audience. (laughs) Why is Pete there? He just goes to...
2: Well, it it makes the scene. If you were directing this movie, you'd have him in the audience standing at the back. Just sort of seething. Sort of seething. Or wistfully staring at the... Delma's hot dog stand,
0: <laughs> um, but it, it, it's you know it's it's full tilt busy week, and at some point in this week, John and Cynthia decide to get married. Yeah, and I say that that's it's a crazy week. Mm. It's a crazy week. Um, so while John and uh, uh, John Paul George and Ringo are filming some other guy at the cavern on the twenty second, that's when Cynthia is. Getting her mother away off to Canada. Go to Canada Canada because I've got something to do uh, tomorrow. Um, And then, so the then they have the day of the wedding itself. And Brian is very intimately involved in their lives at this point.
2: Yes, so he's he's sort of facilitating almost every aspect of their lives. And we commented previously in this episode. You know, they're they're very happy to just hand over control Mm. to Brian. And Brian is a complete control freak. You know, we looked at this in the, in, in the last season about his difficulty in delegating and he's he's there at every step. And already he has this personal relationship with the boys. Yes. So, you know, he collects Cynthia uh, on the day of the wedding to bring her to the wedding in his fancy Ford Zodiac, which is a lovely car, except someone's covered it with a uh, paint stripper.
0: And this could be to do with Brian's... Secret life Yes his alter ego the the things that must not be known yes there are two
2: possibilities that are always talked about one is that it's a fan of Pete. Oh, right. That, you know, has thrown paint stripper on the car. But it seems more likely that this is in some way
0: related to, uh, to Brian's secret life. Hmm. And the wedding has John present, obviously, but Paul and George are there. Yeah. Ringo is not there, but then this is Ringo's fifth day in the band. Yes. And, you know, perhaps hasn't graduated into the nexus of John, Paul and George yet.
2: No, he's they, they, ha- They're still treating him like a Pete. Yes, he's probably having a lie down after appearing on TV the day before. I mean, that, that must have been quite a trajectory... That's good fun. You know, you think this band is going places if you're on on telly. Yeah, but Ringo isn't there. Neil isn't there. Mm. Neil, I suppose at this stage, Neil is very close to the best family and his best mates with Pete.
0: Well, he's also a dad.
2: He's just become a dad. Yeah, and uh, it's that really... You have a sense, I think, or I have a sense that they're perhaps a little bit unsure how that is going to play out Mm -hmm. with Neil... And Pete recounts that, uh, you know, after he is fired, he goes back home. Neil is there and he sort of is saying to Neil, what are we going to do? And Neil is saying, what do you mean we? You know, I'm still employed by them. I'm still, yeah. you, you know, so, and I think from the Beatles' point of view, they must, there must have been a little bit of uncertainty there as to how Neil Aspinall was going, which way he was going to jump, I suppose.
0: Um, and at the at the wedding itself, Cynthia's brother and his wife um, are there. His wife's Marjorie, um, and she is a witness along with Paul McCartney of the wedding. So you know John and Paul very close. Um, and then uh, they head off to to lunch afterwards.
2: Yes. So uh, only five of them go to lunch. So the Cynthia's brother and wife they're not invited to lunch. <laughs> uh, and they go to somewhere called Reese's Restaurant, and this is directly opposite uh, a sort of a enormous pub or sort of alehouse called the vines where coincidentally alf and julia lennon had had their reception
0: 20 years 24 years previously yeah it's so close 24 years um, n- there's no pictures of the event so that's, that's crazy. Like where, Mike where, McCartney was uh, yeah. just there. Like they could have just asked Mike to come along. Yeah. He was taking pictures of washing lines and all sorts yes, of stuff. Yes, like, really? He, was he busy? He must have been. Oh, I find that hard to believe. And, and one of my favourite facts that you've told me is that there were no gifts. Yes. And this is a, the Beatles never gave each other gifts.
2: No, this is a, this is a thing. They never give each other presents.
0: And I was racking my brains um, thinking, surely they must have given each other gifts at some point, but no, send letters and postcards. But yeah. I can't think of any Beatles
2: presents the only thing that i can think of is where it's john's 30th birthday and george turns up in the studio and he's recorded johnny's birthday for him and he gives him a kind of plastic flower that he's taken from the dashboard of his car i mean and that's not really a gift that's a kind of joke yeah um so yeah i think from the very earliest point they there seems to have been a decision well we just not you know we just not give each other gifts
0: that's weird. Yeah. It's, uh, and again, it's, it's this notion of them as a unit. They would receive gifts as a band. They would give gifts as a band, but yeah, they never gave each other. No. They and they were each other's presents. You that's know. probably <laughs> what they
2: were thinking. But Brian, you know, Brian will give them gifts. Yeah. You, you know, Mark Lewis and talks about the, you know, alarm clocks and things that, the travel clocks that Brian is giving them. So, so it works that way, but you no, know, between themselves, is that embarrassing? Did, you know, first Christmas, did Ringo turn up with Arms arms
0: full of presents. <laughs> I bought lots of aftershave. Um, uh, I'll just have to drink it. Um, yeah, John said, I did feel embarrassed about being married, walking around married. It was like walking about with odd socks or your flies open. Okay, that's one way of looking at it, I suppose. Um, and then they go off on honeymoon. No, uh, they don't. No. They go and play a gig. They go and play a gig. So this thing is so slapdash, so last minute that there is a gig. In the evening time. Where do they go? They go to the River Park Ballroom in Chester. And this is a recurring gig they have in August 1962. So for each Thursday in 1962, they are playing, or for a number of Thursdays, they're playing the River Park Ballroom in Chester. So this was the second of four.
2: Yeah. Uh, and uh, again, they're topping the bill. The Support Act uh, is the Remo Four. Mm-hmm. And I, I looked up some stuff about the Remo Four. Tell
0: me all about the Remo Four. How many were in the band?
2: There were four. Great. Any other facts? Uh, they, eventually, they signed to NEMS in 1963. Mm-hmm. Tommy Quickly, you know, <laughs> Dirk McGuickley. Yes. Uh, Tommy Quickly becomes their lead singer and they record uh, Tip of My Tongue. Oh, yes. this is a sort of Paul McCartney, I suppose it's a Leonard McCartney, but it's a Paul song. And uh, then they cross paths again uh, with the Beatles in 1967 when George hires them to perform on the Wonderwall ah. soundtrack alongside Eric Clapton and Peter Tork and I think. And um, Tony Ashton yes. joins them briefly.
0: Who's Tony Ashton? Oh. Oh, here I go. I've let the sign down,
2: have I? Tony Ashton is a keyboard player, and he he starts moving in circles sort of deep purple circles, white Okay. And you must have heard of uh, Pace Ashton, yes, Lord, yes, yes, I have. Which yes. featured uh, your good friend and Bernie Marston. Bernie Marston. <laughs> fan of the show,
0: fan of the show. <laughs> um, I I'm, now I'm embarrassed that Bernie heard me say that. You're the wrong age. Uh, I guess so. But when the Remo Four are doing the support on that night, uh, John has a bit of a bee in his bonnet. Like he's not the happy married man. He's He's still angry.
2: He's still angry. He's still angry John Lennon. So uh, he is reportedly furious that the Remo Four are performing in their set some songs that the Beatles have in their set. And he walks (laughs) on stage demanding to know if they're going to play any more. While they are playing the While they are playing. So a member of the band says, uh, the ballroom was long and thin and the dressing room was to the right of the stage. Halfway through our set, mid-song, John Lennon jumped up on the stage and yelled at us, how many of our fucking songs are you going to play? <laughs> Do you think, you'd, this is where you would take your time machine. You'd want to see that.
0: You would want to see that, you know. And uh, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're playing gigs. And so, you know, the, the 23rd of August becomes John's, Wedding anniversary. Yes. Which doesn't really seem to get a look in on any other 23rd of August
2: ever. No. You don't hear about parties or big celebrations or. Yeah. Or, you
0: know, I'm glad I'm going to finish early. I'm going to. Yeah, got to take the wife. Going to go out for an Indian. Yeah. Yeah, None of that happens. But August the 23rd, 1962, as we have said, wraps up a very uh, tumultuous week in the life of the Beatles. They go from being John Paul. George and Pete to John Paul, George and Ringo. Uh, they make their first television appearance. They get married and they are gigging like the clappers. They get married. The Beatles all get married. In <laughs> a way. A, in a way. That's my fan fiction. In a way, they all get married. <laughs> that, that would
2: happen. I think, I think in, in the movie of, the, of the, that we will be directing, this is, uh, you, you know, if you wrote that and pitched it, they would say, no, no, that's unbelievable that yeah. all of that happened in that um that space of time.
0: What a busy day. What a busy day. What a busy day. I've you had, you know, I've gotten married, I've had a boozy lunch and now I'm having a fight with the Remo Four. Like, that's that's a year that's in a my year world, in your world. <laughs> to get all of that done. Um, yeah, I do like that notion that he kind of just wanders on stage and then has a, has a, has a, has a you know, <laughs> starts taking them do to you task. Think,
2: do you think he was, uh, you know, channeling his, his aggression from the marriage? <laughs> well,
0: ah, <laughs> well, what have I done? It finally caught up with him. Um, but, uh, you know, that is, uh, you know, that is a full day by the by the time the, the sun goes down or they put their heads on the pillow on August the 23rd, 1962. So we are going to continue looking at August the 23rd in our next episode, which 1962, what year comes after 1962? Uh, that's 1963. Well done. Uh, and on Friday, the 23rd of August, 1963, this is the day that She Loves You is released in the UK. See, August the 23rd is quite a date. Well done. You did your research. I'm I'm, I'm (laughs) very, very very proud. So it's a good way to celebrate your first wedding anniversary by releasing She Loves You. But we are going to talk about that next time. We remain available in all the usual places. We are on Twitter at uh, Beatles Pod. We have the Nothing Is Real Facebook group. We have the website that ties everything together, www.nothingisrealpod.com. And um, there's uh, Instagram, TikTok, Mastodon, all the places where we vaguely exist. And uh, we're always happy to uh, to interact and talk uh, at any point in time. But for now, my name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cocker. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening.
1: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on Acas Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.